The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and taking this morning verses 7 and 11. Verses 7 and 11 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now we come in our study of this epistle to the Ephesians to these two particular verses. Those who have been attending here regularly will know that we have been considering verses 8, 9, and 10 which constitute a kind of parenthesis. We've been considering that because it is essential that we should grasp their teaching if we truly are to understand the teaching of these two verses that are around them, verses 7 and 11. You remember how we saw that the apostle, having uttered the statement which we have here in verse 7, namely that unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, instead of going straight on to explain what exactly the Lord Jesus Christ does, first of all, explain to us how he is in this position to do this. And so we had to interpret verses 8, 9, and 10. And therefore we have found that the doctrine in its essence is this, that the apostle being concerned with the great theme of unity in the church. The fundamental exhortation is that we should all endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He is now showing how this unity does not consist of a drab mechanical sameness, but is indeed a most wonderful unity in variety, a unity in diversity. And this, he says, is something that is to be seen in the church. And uh, the way in which the unity is preserved, he says, in spite of the diversity, is entirely due to the fact that our Lord is the head of the church. He has become the head of the church as the result of the work that he has done on behalf of the church and behalf of his people, and there he is. He has ascended upon high. He has led captivity captive and given gifts unto men. And it is because he is in that position that you can have at one and the same time this perfect essential unity and yet this almost endless variety and variation. Well, now then, we now in these two verses uh, must uh, proceed to consider how the Apostle works this out a little in detail. He says there is the principle, but he wants us just to see it working itself out in detail in the life and the activity of the Christian church. So what we are now going to look at is one of his many pictures, which we have in his epistles, of the Christian church with Christ as the head. Now, once more, 
we find him using what was obviously his favorite picture and illustration with respect to the church. And that is that the church is like a body. The church is the body of Christ. We saw it there in 1 Corinthians 12 in our reading just now. You'll find it in many places in his epistles. He comes back to it more frequently than to any other. The church, he says, is comparable to a body. And it is as he works out this analogy that we see him demonstrating this contention that you have at one and the same time unity and yet diversity and that there is no contradiction at all between these two things and indeed still more important that the only unity which we must ever recognize is a unity that allows for the diversity so that if we see no diversity we can be sure that it isn't the living unity of the Lord and the Spirit but is some mechanical machine-like Unity produced by men. Very well. Now there is, I say, his fundamental proposition. He doesn't state it boldly that it's to be in terms of the body in these two verses. But of course in verse 12 he states it explicitly. and It's a part of the same statement. He says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to work it out still more in detail in terms of the body. Very well. Here I say we are looking at a most important theme, and particularly important at this present time. With all the talk and all the writing about the church and about ecumenicity and about unity and all these things, never perhaps was it more important that we should consider and try to understand what exactly is the Apostle's teaching with regard to this most essential matter? And here it is for us. Now let's be careful to observe this. The Apostle does not lay down here a rigid system of church order. Indeed, it is questionable whether such a thing is to be found anywhere in the Scripture. Nevertheless, it is important to say this, that certain principles are laid down, which we are meant to observe and to practice. Therefore, we must be careful to avoid two dangers. The one danger is to go beyond the scripture and to impose some rigid, legal, mechanical system upon the church. The other is that in our fear of doing that, we have no system at all. And the church, as indeed she tends to be at the present time, will be in a state of chaos and everything will not be done decently and in order according to the apostolic injunction. Very well. I just want to hold some of the principles before you this morning. And obviously, we can't deal with it all this morning, but we shall have to go on, God willing, to consider the full exposition as we have it in this most important paragraph. Now then, I'm simply extracting principles. Here is the first, it seems to me, that Christ, himself is the head of the church. Now, I needn't stay with this, but I must start with it, because it's often been forgotten. Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. There is only one king in the church, 
It is King Jesus. Christ, I say, alone is the head of the church, not the Pope. And not only not the Pope, no earthly prince or monarch, no man, no woman can ever be the head of the church. Christ alone is the head of the church. Now, I leave it like that, but you know your history, your church history sufficiently to know that this has often been forgotten and many a battle has had to be fought on this matter. No pope, no head of the church except the Lord himself and the Lord directly. It is Christ in the church that is the head of the church and wherever two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there. There is no head to the church apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us think about this. Let us work it out. In these days when all these principles are again in the melting pot, in the minds of the vast majority of people, did our forefathers fight in vain about these matters? Does it matter or not whether we say that there is no other head to the church and that no man must ever be placed in that position? Christ is the head, and we are the body and members in particular. Very well, I leave it at that, but let me go on to my second principle, which is this one. That the church consists of members, each of which has a function under the head. Now, you notice how the apostle puts that in verse 7, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Again, I don't want to stay with this principle, but we hurry over it or pass it at our peril. Because, you see, here again is something that we tend to lose sight of. Unto every one of us is grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, this is when he talks about grace given here. He's not talking about the grace of salvation. He's already dealt with that. He's concerned here now about the working of the church, the functioning of the church as the body of Christ. Obviously, we all have been given the grace of salvation and we are not in the church at all. But that isn't, that isn't what he's interested in. He goes on to say, and he gave some apostles. It's the grace in the sense of functioning in the church. And not merely that initial grace which brings us all into the realm of redemption. What he means, in other words, is this. And you see, the analogy of the body proves it to perfection. He says that uh, a special grace is given to every single member of the Christian church to perform a given function. Indeed, the very function is given to us. He gives the function and he gives us the ability to be able to work out and to exercise that particular function. Now, take the analogy of the body and I think you'll see it at once. There is nothing in my body, there is not a particle in my body, but that it has got some function. We don't always know what the function is, but the fact that we may not know it doesn't mean that it hasn't a function. 
Everything has a function. Now, you see, uh, scientists have often fallen into a grievous error on this matter. A hundred years ago, uh, and a little later, those who believed in the theory of evolution were saying quite dogmatically that the thyroid gland had no function at all. A vestigial remain, and so on with various other ductless glands. But by today, of course, we know that they have function. Today, they're still saying that the appendix has no function. What they really mean is that they don't know what it is. And they may well discover that it has a most important function. Now, the point I'm making is that there is nothing in the body, nothing at all, not a cell, not the smallest cell, not a hair, not anything, but that it has a, a function, a purpose. It may appear to be very insignificant in and of itself, yes, but it's there, and it works with the others, and it all has its part and its place, and its function to play. Unto every one of us is grace given. Now, I wonder, as we look at this and test ourselves by it, I wonder how we find ourselves in the Christian church this morning. Hasn't a fatal tendency come in to think and to say that the vast majority of people in the church are just passive? Are there not some people who seem to think of the church just as a building in which, uh, to which they come to sit and listen to sermons and addresses and so on? And they do nothing. Well, that's quite wrong. You see, it's a denial of this uh, fundamental proposition. And to every one of us is grace given in the church as parts of the body of Christ, as members in particular. Every one of us has a function, and we are not just to be passive. The whole genius of the body is, as I say, that every part and particle and portion has this peculiar something that it is meant for. And uh, therefore, uh, the first thing we have to do is to discover what this is. And so, as we look at it, we realize, I trust, the privilege of being members of the Christian church. The glory of our position, that in this amazing body that Christ is forming through the Spirit, we all have a part and a place. Now, I read to you 1 Corinthians 12 at the beginning, in order that we might be reminded of some of these functions, and even that is not exhaustive. There is something peculiar that every one of us is called to do and can do. And as we believe in Christ and in the church, and as we believe that the church is the custodian and the guardian of the only message that can save men in this terrible modern world, I say our first duty is to discover what our function is and to exercise it. There is something. It may appear to be unimportant, as I'm going to show you. That doesn't matter. The vital thing is that there is something for every one of us, and to every one of us is grace, or as some would translate it, is a grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. But now let me go on to something else, a third principle. It is Christ himself who gives each one of us this peculiar grace. 
It's given to every one of us, yes, but who gives it? Well, you notice how careful the apostle is to emphasize this point. He does, he emphasizes it in the seventh verse and in the eleventh. And to every one of us is grace given according to what measure? According to the measure of the gift of Christ. Then in verse 11, unfortunately this revised, uh, this authorized version uh, doesn't bring it out as it should. I read here, and he gave some apostles. But there is no question at all that the right translation there is this. And he himself gave some to be apostles. He himself gave. It's emphatic. Not just he, but he himself. Lest we might uh, fail to realize this and uh, fail to remember that it is uh, the Lord himself who gives all these various gifts. Now then, we come to what is the most important practical aspect of this whole question. We come to what is, in many ways, it seems to me, uh, from the standpoint of the activities in the church today, one of the most important things we can ever look at. It is, I'm suggesting, the failure to grasp this doctrine that accounts for so much of the confusion that is so evident at the present hour. If you like it in other terms, we are going to consider the doctrine of the call. Men and women in the church called to given functions and given the ability to perform them by the Lord himself. A very difficult subject, a very vexed subject, one that is frequently misunderstood. I'm simply, I say, going to pull out some of these principles that seem to me to be here on the very surface. Now let me put it like this. I say that it is the Lord himself who does it. He himself gave. Let me put the negatives therefore. A man does not call himself. We don't suddenly decide to do this or that in the church. I say, I mean by that that we should not. Alas, it has often been done. A man decides that he's going to preach or to do this or that. He does so. He's not interested in a doctrine of the call. He's never heard of it. He's not concerned about it. He wants to. He therefore does. But I say that a man, according to this teaching here, does not call himself. Still less, of course, does he go in for the ministry or anything else as a profession. You look at the history of the Christian church, and you look at those dead periods in the history of the church, and what accounts for them? Well, very often it's just this. Wasn't it once the tradition and the custom to do something like this in great families, Eldest son went into the navy, second son went into the army, third son, ministry. Became a clergyman. Now, this isn't caricaturing it, it was actually done. And the men who went in for the ministry went in in exactly the same way, in the same spirit as the others, went into the navy or into the army, or whatever it was. A profession. And it is that, I say, that has so frequently accounted for the state of the Christian church. 
Indeed, let's not imagine this is confined to the past. There are men still who have gone into the ministry, as they put it, in exactly the same way. A man may be a bit of a poet, and he wants a quiet life in which he can read literature and have time to write his poetry or to write his novels or whatever he wants to write goes into the ministry. Nice kind of life appeals to him. Living perhaps in the country, having just enough to make sure of a livelihood and then able to exercise this other gift. Oh, I mustn't keep you. Alas, this has so often happened. And beloved people, this is why the church is so often as she is. Men have forgotten that it is he who calls and that a man doesn't decide. A man doesn't set himself up in the church in any capacity, in any sense at all. But it has often happened, it is still often happening. And I say the result is the confusion and the chaos and the lack of life and of power that are alas so evident amongst us. But let me go on. Not only does a man not call himself, The need is not the call. Here's an important negative. How often are we hearing in these days that the need is the call, but the need is not the call. It is the Lord who calls. The Lord may call because of the need. He may call us to do something because of this need or with respect to this need or because there is a need. But the need cannot be the call for this good reason. If the need is the call, well, then every one of us should be responding to that need. And that, of course, is patently something which is quite ridiculous. The need is not meant to be the call. It is the Lord himself who sees the whole field, who is the head of the whole body, who sees a need here and a need there at the same time. He doesn't see as we see. He sees perfectly. And so I say we must establish this principle. That merely because I see a need in a given place, I say I must go and do something about it. It may not be the Lord's will that I should. He may have something else for me to do. He may want somebody else to do that. Oh, let us get rid, I say, of this unscriptural notion that the need is the call. It's a denial of this principle that the Lord is the only one who gives the call. And he gives it directly. So I go on in the third place to say this, that the church does not give the call and that it is not the business of the church to call a man directly to any given work. Now, this isn't my opinion. Let me quote you the words of our blessed Lord and Savior himself at this point, supporting, substantiating, undergirding the very thing the apostle tells here. Unto every one of us is grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He himself. Listen to the Lord saying it himself. Take this famous statement in Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What are we to do then? What is the church to do? Is she to lay hands upon people and thrust them forth into the harvest? No, no. This is what the church is to do. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. What do we do then? Well, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. 
We don't send them. He sends them. And all we do is to pray unto him to send them forth. Now, I, I, I believe this is tragically forgotten amongst us. And we deem it to be our business to call people, and we do so in various ways. We suggest to young men that they should do this, that, or the other. What a scandalous thing it is to do. What right have we to suggest to another what his function is in the church or what he ought to do? It's often been done. There are many men in the ministry for one reason only, that at a given point an old minister or somebody, or somebody else or a deacon went to them and said, don't you think you ought to be in the ministry? And persuaded him to go. Forgive a personal reference, I repeat it only to illustrate the point I'm making. Some 30 years ago, when I felt called of God and of Christ to enter the ministry in this way and to preach the gospel, I received a letter from the general secretary of a certain foreign mission society. And in this letter, he suggested to me that instead of preaching the gospel in this country, I ought to be a medical missionary in India. It seemed so obvious to him. There was a post vacant at the time. There was a man needed very badly in a given hospital in, in India. And here was I going to preach the gospel in Great Britain, when obviously I was the man to fit that post in India. Well, my reply to that good man, whose motives, of course, were excellent and with whom I had great sympathy, my reply to him simply was this. I just asked him a question. I asked him, did he believe in the biblical doctrine of a call? Did he believe that the Lord of the harvest still chose the men and chose where to send them? That for myself, I not only believed it, but acted upon it, and hence did not go to India. But you see, there is an element here which is almost impertinent. I mean, a spiritual impertinence. Who are we to know? We think we understand, yet we blunder in our own affairs. But we don't hesitate to stand up and legislate for the church and decide what men are to do. No, no. It isn't the business of the church to suggest to people. Still less is it the business of the church to bring pressure upon them, as is so often done in an emotional atmosphere. When the need has been displayed and impressed upon young people, then the appeal is made. Who's ready to volunteer? It's a denial of the scriptures, my friends. And I'm keeping you with this, not because it's a matter of theoretical interest. There are tragedies happening because of this kind of thing. There are people whose whole life has been ruined by this kind of thing. There are men who, te who teach this. They say, now look here, it's the business of every young Christian to go to the mission field. Don't bother about a call, they say. The need is the call, go there. And then they say, if you find when you've got there that you are not meant to be there, well then go home. That is the travesty of this teaching. And so I say, confusion enters the church and many a life is ruined simply because of failure to apply the teaching of the scripture. And so I say it is utterly unscriptural to bring this kind of pressure to bear upon people and to ask people to signify if they're ready, if they're called to go to the mission field. You know, it's equally sensible to test a meeting like this, to ask all those people who are prepared not to go but to stay at home to stand up also. You see, you and I are to be willing to do anything that the Lord wants us to do. 
Not only to go to the mission field, but perhaps not to go to the mission field. I have known cases in which I have had no doubt that people were wrong in going to the mission field. There were other tests, not that I decide, but as I see things, I say. The point is that we all of us are to realize that it is the Lord alone who calls. You know, sometimes it's easier to go than not to go. There are people who are greatly comforted by doing something heroic. If they could only go to the heart of Africa and build a hospital, oh, it would be wonderful. But what if it's God's will that they don't and that they stay doing something drab and ordinary in this country? Now I say we must get rid of this notion that the church or the need determine the call. We, as Christian people, as members of the body of Christ in particular, are to be at his disposal and we are to be ready to do anything he asks us to do. So I must never test people whether they're ready to go without at the same time testing them whether they're prepared not to go. It is the Lord's doing. It is his choosing. And thus we are to avoid this unscriptural confusion. No, no. It isn't the business of the church to call people as she sees the need. Here's the divine, the magisterial commandment. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will thrust forth laborers into the harvest. And when he sends them, they stay there. And they go back after their first furlough. Oh, there is tragic confusion in connection with this whole subject of foreign mission work at the present time. And Christ's name is being brought into disrepute. People are thus rushing emotionally. And when they get there, they see it's wrong and they come back and they don't go back again. And people see it in the neighborhood from which they've gone. Do you know that there are some countries in which I'm given to understand that only about one in three go back after their first furlough? Why? Well, because they've been called by men and not by the Lord. The need has been the call or the church has given the call. They've never realized that we are but individual parts and portions and that it is the head that decides and that this is his prerogative and his alone. But, says someone, how are we to know this? How are we to know? When this call comes, hasn't the church anything to do with it? What you do with the man who comes forward and says, I've been called of the Lord to do this or that. Ah, oh, the scripture provides for all that. It starts with this great central doctrine that the Lord is the one who calls himself. But then you see the scripture also shows that this is to be tried and this is to be tested. And how is that done? Well, this is where the church does come in. But the function of the church is mainly a negative one. The church applies certain tests to a man who thus steps forward. He doesn't do a thing because he feels he's called. No, no, he comes to the church and he makes his statement and then the church considers this matter. It's all here. You'll find it in the sixth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. You'll find it in the pastoral epistles. There are detailed rules and regulations about elders and about deacons and about those who preach and teach. It's all here. And it is the business of the church, I say, to apply these tests. There are two sides to this. May I illustrate this? In repeating to you that well-known story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 
who had his own way of putting these things so perfectly. A man, a young man once went to him and said that he had been called and told by the Spirit that he was to preach the following Sunday in Spurgeon's tabernacle. And you remember Spurgeon's reply. He said, well, that's very odd, he said, because the Spirit hasn't told me that. And that's just it. When the Spirit does it, he not only tells the young men, he tells Charles Haddon Spurgeon as well. Everything must be done decently and in order, says Paul, lest the ministry be blamed. There mustn't be confusion in the church. And when the Spirit does, he always does it in this orderly manner. So there are these instructions to the church. You have a check, as it were, so that a man is not misled by an impulse. We are all so frail. The enemy is so subtle, he can turn himself even to an, into an angel of light in order to confuse us. So the man who is truly called is a humble man. And he doesn't just set himself up, he goes to the church. He says, this I verily believe is the call of Christ. And he sets himself before the church. And the church examines him. Now, it is very important, of course, that the church should do this correctly. You see, I'm dealing with a large subject and I can't deal with it exhaustively and I'm liable to misunderstanding. There are errors and dangers on all sides here. The church must do this in a spiritual manner. The church must be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. The church mustn't do it in a legal manner, nor in a rigid manner, nor in a merely formal manner. You see, there are stories on all sides. The church in the past has made tragic mistakes at times. There have been men who have been truly called of God and have gone to the church. And the church has said, no, you're not called. The church has turned them down. But the church was tragically wrong there. The church is not infallible. You can't legalize these matters. There is this liberty of the spirit, this balance of the spirit. And it behoves us all, therefore, to keep ourselves in the Spirit and under the influence of the Spirit, on the one side and on the other. And so often, therefore, church history shows us very plainly that whether we like it or not, it is he who calls. You consider, for instance, the treatment meted out to George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers and others by the Church of England 200 years ago. And you'll see a perfect illustration of it. The church then was blind. She couldn't see that it was the Lord who'd called these men and sent them out on their mighty function. The church couldn't see it. But the church was wrong. The one side, I say, and the other. Oh, it is God who gives his gifts to the church. And this is the most glorious thing in church history. To see the way he does it, how unexpectedly he does it, how he lays his hand on an immoral philosopher like Augustine, how he takes hold of a monk like Martin Luther, a great legal brain like Calvin, and so many others. There he is giving his gifts. He calls, he gives, the church doesn't always understand but there it is. That doesn't mean that you brush aside the church and say the church doesn't matter. She makes mistakes. She may make mistakes. And that is because she's not scriptural at that point and she's not spiritual. In other words, let me sum it up by putting it in this form. 
that as I emphasize that it is the Lord himself and he alone who calls and not the church, I want equally to emphasize on this other side that there is nothing which is so far removed from the apostles' picture of the church as institutionalism and ecclesiasticism. You just don't see it in the New Testament. It isn't here at all. When the machine has become everything and is so rigid that you can't enter in at any point, institutionalism is the denial of this picture of the church as the body of Christ and members in particular, with Christ alone as the head and the Holy Spirit making this blessed, wonderful unity. Institutionalism, ecclesiasticism, is, I say, a denial of this as much as is the chaos that we see in other circles at the present hour, when men set themselves up and there is, as it were, no king in Israel. Therefore, I say, let us look at the whole scripture and endeavor as we are given grace and strength by the Spirit to preserve this balance. Very well, that brings me on to my fourth principle. And this is still more practical. It is the Lord alone who gives this grace, and he gives this grace to every one of us. And it differs and varies from case to case. This is obvious, isn't it? Here it is, you see, he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I'm not going into that this morning. All I'm emphasizing is this. It is he who appoints the various offices and functions in the church. Therefore, if a man comes along and says, I don't believe in any organization at all, you say, what about Paul in Ephesians 4? You see, there are people who think it's very spiritual to say, no, no, there must be no organization. It's all of the Spirit. It's all this wonderful, loose, free fellowship. No organization. The answer is, he gave some to be apostles. And some to be prophets. Some to be evangelists. Some pastors and teachers. He has determined the offices in the church. It isn't a man-made device this. It's he who's done it. Elders and deacons and all the rest. It's all from him through these inspired apostles. And you see, he's not only appointed these offices and functions. They're not all the same. I needn't stop with this. 1 Corinthians 12 has put that perfectly. Some are more important than others. And yet every one of them is essential. There are some parts which are not as comely as others. Yet he says, you know, these uncomely parts are necessary. And we may bestow the more abundant honor upon them. We may say, oh, what's a foot in comparison with a hand? And so on. And you remember his contrast about the seeing and the smelling and so on. He says, no, that's not the point. He says, they are different and they're meant to be different. But they're all of them absolutely essential to the harmonious working of the whole. Therefore, I say, let us see these things. And therefore, secondly... Let us see that he appoints the men to the offices. That's what we are told. He gave some to be or as apostles. It is he who chose the apostles. It is he who chooses the prophets and everything else. He gives us these different 
offices and he gives us the ability to exercise the function we are meant to exercise in that particular office. Here again there is obvious inequality. The scripture itself tells us that uh, exceptional honor is to be given to those elders who preach and teach and so on. Clearly because they are doing a very important thing. There is a gradation of offices in the church, and some are more important and others less important. But I say, they're all absolutely essential. So we are to hold these two things again in our minds at the same time. The division of offices, the gradation in offices, and yet that they're all equally essential. And are all equally given and called by the Lord himself. How then are we to do this in practice? Well, we do so in this way. We start by recognizing the inequalities. And far from being disturbed or upset at the inequalities, we say they are of his appointing. And they are for the full and harmonious functioning of the church. Then having recognized these differences and gradations, we must respect them. That is why James says, you see, in the third chapter of his epistle, in the first verse, my brethren, be not many masters. There were people then in the church, you see, who, see, you see, who said, we're all equal. We're all one. We're all teachers. We're all preachers. We all do the same thing. Because I'm a Christian, I do this, that, and the other, and everybody else does. My brethren, be not many masters. You're not all meant to be masters. Church history again reminds you, doesn't it, how this has often been forgotten? All equal, all doing the same thing, all called to do the same thing. No, no, be not many masters. We must recognize that there are different functions, different offices, different abilities, different callings in the church. But immediately, I must add this, we must not harden this into some rigid, absolute division. I see nothing in the scriptures to support a monarchical idea of church government. I will call no man in the church my Lord. There is no monarchical authority. Now our forefathers shed their blood for this. But there's a tendency today to say these things don't matter at all. But they do matter. We recognize there are different functions and callings and offices. Yes, but not absolute. So that the man in the lower office goes on his knees, but not at all. We've all received the same grace. We've been given different functions, but we're all equally essential. And I call no man Lord, and I call no man Master in the church. I recognize the divisions, and I look up to a man who's got a higher function than I have, but not in this slavish manner, not as a subject to a Lord or a King, or one who has some monarchical authority. It's not here. Indeed, that is a denial of what is here. And then I say we must learn how to regard these things aright, both in ourselves and in others. In ourselves, we do it like this. If you feel you've been called to a high office or that you've been given some remarkable gift, don't be proud, don't boast of it, don't despise another brother. Listen to Paul. Who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. 
If therefore you're in this exalted position, be humble. What you've got has been given to you. The office has been given. The gift has been given. The ability has been given. You've got nothing but what you've received. Don't boast, therefore. Don't despise. On the other hand, if you're the man in the other position, don't be envious. Don't be jealous. Don't look at another and say, why has he got this and I not? My dear friend, read 1 Corinthians 12 and be corrected. We must all be content with the function which we've been given, the task to which we've been called. I care not how lowly nor how insignificant it is. I care not if we're not lauded by men and if our names are never in the newspapers. It doesn't matter. It is the Lord who's called. My function is essential. I do it to his glory. I rejoice in it. I praise God that I'm in the body at all, even though I may be one of the less comely parts, which doesn't seem to be necessary. I am what I am by the grace of God. It is he who has called me. It is he who has given the appointment and the ability. And I say we must apply this also with regard to our view of others. You see, that's what they had failed to do in Corinth. And so the church was divided up into sects and schisms and groups. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Why? Well, they were looking at the men and praising the men. Isn't he marvelous? Isn't he one? No, no, says the other. This is the marvelous men. What had they all forgotten? They had forgotten that Paul is nothing and Apollos is nothing but ministers of Christ. And not a single one of them would have any gift at all if the Lord God, if Christ had not given it. Therefore, he says, glory not in men. Glory only in the Lord, the giver of the gifts, the head of the church. Oh, isn't it obvious that it is our failure to study the scriptures that leads to the troubles and the confusions, the divisions and the schisms, the heart-renderings, the heart-breakings, jealousy, envy, and rivalry, and all this muddle and confusion and revival stays. Why? Well, how can he honor such a church, such a collection of people? We must come back to this, my friends. This isn't something theoretical for church leaders. That's where we've gone wrong. We think this is only to be discussed in church councils. It's for every member of the church. This epistle was written to every member of the church at Ephesus. You and I must have ideas about these things. So that when we read about these things, we must have opinions and express them. And it is our duty to see that the church functions as her Lord intended her to do. Let us therefore, all of us, for we have all gone astray somewhere. Let us all humble ourselves before him. Let us confess our pride or our jealousy, our envy, our failure, whatever it may be. Our self-seeking, our self-importance. Our feeling that we are neglected, whatever it is on whichever side. Let's go back to him, I say, and humble ourselves before him. Let's ask him to forgive us, to cleanse us. Let us ask him again to make it plain and clear to us what he's called us to do, what he desires us to do. And then let us rise up and do it with all our might, but relying upon the might and the authority and the power of the Holy Ghost himself.
We shall go on, God willing, to see why all this is so important and so essential. Amen.